Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala adihi wa sahbihi jma'in. Welcome everybody. Welcome alhamdulillah. Uh, to our 25th, 25th session on the study of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu 25 hours. We spent 25, well, 24. We're about to spend 25 hours on reflecting and getting to know the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the last messenger. Really amazing. I, I don't think maybe like in our whole lives we've gone at this pace to study the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So what you'll notice is that when you spend time doing something, when you slow down, when you reflect, when you think about it more, you will find benefits that you never appreciated before, right? So like you might be at a certain stage of your life. And this is why scholars say that like you should read the Quran and you should read Sirah every year, every year, right? In Ramadan, read the Quran, but then they say like every year you should also read the life of the Prophet Sallallahu because your life is always changing. And so there might be something that he went through, peace be upon him, early on in your life that resonated with you but some parts that did not resonate with you. And then there might be some things that later on in your life, they really resonated with you. Those same things that before you didn't really pick up on, right? So having a relationship with Sirah that's like this, slow and kind of, you know, you can repeat it and read. I was just talking with somebody earlier. They're like, what book do you read for Sirah? And they were asking about different books. And um, we there's like an infinite amount of books that you can read about Sirah. And the reason why it never dies out is because it's such a classic. It's such an amazing story. It's such a classic topic that no matter what author has written about it, there's going to be a beautiful lens. There's going to be a, a new take on it, a new lens. So this is really amazing, mashallah. Uh, lessons from last week. So I wanted to kind of get us up to speed because this is a really critical session. I feel like I say that at the beginning of every session. But this is a really critical session especially. Um, number one, when the Quraysh plotted to kill the Prophet Wasallam. When they had finally come to terms with the fact that they weren't going to be able to stop him, they weren't going to be able to slow him down, then their their resolution then was to kill him, to end his life. Now, that wasn't necessarily what they decided without the aid of Shaytan, who was present at that meeting at Dar Nadwa. He was present at that meeting, and his goal was to influence them towards the most extreme uh, resolution that they could come up with. So in the beginning, it was like, let's just lock him up. Let's just imprison him with people guarding him. Let's just, you know, kind of things that are a little bit less extreme. And then Shaytan is the one who encouraged Abu Jahl to have the extreme, uh, you know, idea of let's gather everybody from each tribe, everybody from each clan within the tribe, and everybody will strike him. And there will be so much uh, responsibility. There will be so much liability spread across all of the clans that there's no way they're going to retaliate. There's no way that you can retaliate against everybody. And so what we take from this is that, number one, shaitan doesn't work in big leaps. He doesn't work in big steps, right? He works in very small steps. That's why, you know, Allah Ta'ala says, khutuwa to shaitan. The phrase that's given to how shaitan works is like small steps. 
Because Shaitan's not going to come to you one day and be like, hey, Salaam Alaikum. He won't even say that, by the way. He'll be like, hey, come to you and be like, hey, just commit shirk. Like, that's not how it works, right? You're not going to wake up like Muslim but struggling and he's like, just do kufr, man. It's no big deal. Because why? It's just such an outlandish, ridiculous thing to ask, you know? Think of like a sin that like you hear about it and you're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, that's that's way outside of my comfort zone, way outside of my – you're right? Because we all have sins that unfortunately we become comfortable with. But even for everybody, there's sins that we're like, no, that's not – I'm never going to go there. Shaitan's not going to go there. He's not going to throw Hail Mary, right? He's not going to be like Aaron Rodgers get picked off. He is going to instead throw – there's no one here who should – where's Rimmel? Oh, okay, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, we beat you guys, remember? Okay, so it's, a, it's, okay. it's okay. May Allah Ta'ala help your memory, inshallah. <laughs> so, so I love you, Rimmel. Okay, so – He's not going to go like that. Shaitan's going to start small, right? Shaitan's not going to tell you to start missing all of your prayers at once. He's going to start with one. Shaitan's not going to tell you to make, make the, a big mistake in your, in your life with your relationships. He's going to start with small things, right? So it's not going to be like cut off your family. It's going to be things like just ignore them. Just ignore their phone calls. Just don't call them back. Just don't respond. To, you know, it's going to be those small things. And then eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be like this, the jump, but it's going to be a lot less dramatic than it would have been had he done that from the beginning. And that's exactly what he illustrated for us here, right? He came to this group of people, and he wasn't the one even to be like, yeah, I think you should kill him. He kind of let people marinate in their ideas for a while, and then he also included his rejection of the idea, no, it's not going to work, that one's not going to work, until they climbed finally this mountain of you know horrible ideas, and they got to the one that was murder. So Shaitan works in strategic ways, thus... Your good deeds also have to be strategic. What do I mean by strategic? What does strategic mean? I'm going to use that word. Strategy. Efficient, maybe. But what do I mean? When you say, like, when someone says, did you strategize? What are they asking you? Did you think about it? Yeah, did you think about it? Like, virtue doesn't just happen accidentally, right? Virtue, and that goes with our last point, virtue doesn't happen accidentally. Abu Bakr Siddiq didn't just reach this level of faith accidentally. Like, how'd you become such a good Muslim? I was like, I don't know, I just woke up, right? Like, how'd you start praying? I don't know, I just woke up. I had a wudu, right? And I just got up and prayed. No, virtue happens. Virtue, khair, goodness, iman, faith. They happen from hard work, from juhad. Like, you have to, you kind of have to fight yourself a little bit, right? And so just like shaitan is strategic, you got to be strategic. You know what that means? Anyone here struggle with fajr, fajr prayer? Okay, do we know what fajr prayer is, right? <laughs> You're like, can't struggle with it if you don't know it. It's like, you know... Anyone struggle with Fajr? Yeah, right? Okay, Fajr prayer before sunrise, okay? Fajr is a struggle. It is a struggle for everybody. It is difficult, okay? You know what being strategic with Fajr means? It means going to sleep early. Exactly. My mom always used to say this. She still says this. She's like, you are so concerned with your alarms and Fajr and drink three cups of water and sleep on the floor and, you know, do this and that so you can get uncomfortable and wake up. She goes... Just go to sleep early. Just put your phone down. Just don't watch that next episode. Like, just be strategic about your khair. Ask yourself, right? Many of us, it's like, well, I'm going to go, you know, the other day we were playing, uh, we were playing basketball at one of these gyms and some of the guys like brought long pants to pray in, right? If, if you don't wear the hijab normally and you go to work and I wish I could pray at work, but I don't have a scarf, leave one in your trunk, right? Like plan these things out. Give yourself the chance to do good by planning it a little bit. Right, just like anything else in life, whether it's investments or dieting or you know curriculum for your school, your degree, whatever, everything that you want to succeed at well, smoothly requires a little bit of planning. Same with spirituality. Spirituality has to be planned out, just like 
Because you know shaitan's planning out the other side. Okay, so you got to make sure that you're giving yourself some chances, inshallah. The second is that the trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we talked about was unshakable. We have no doubt in this. Allah was not doubted. God did not, he was not doubted by the Prophet You know, the Prophet never opened his hands to the sky and said, God, are you there? Or God, you know, why, you know, why, why, why is this happening to me? Like, do, do you even know what's going on? That was never the spirit of it. His conversations with Allah were very honest and open, but never for a moment did he think that God didn't know what was happening or wasn't in control. But at the same time, he still took the means, the asbab, right? That God tells us that we have to do things, right? So we believe that God feeds us, but we still have to eat. We believe that God gives us, you know, income and sustenance, but we still have to work. So we, part of being spiritual, the Prophet ﷺ was the most spiritual person, but spirituality also requires that if you want to obtain from the divine, you want to benefit from the divine, you got to put in work on the earth. You have to trust and do those things on the earth. You have to maintain your asbab, okay? And the last is that Abu Bakr Siddiq, the Prophet ﷺ's best friend, his closest companion, he was somebody that every Muslim at some point, whether you, know, you were born into Islam, whether you accepted Islam later, whether you were re-engaging with your faith at a later time, his name, his story is going to be something that you hear. And there's a reason for that because his faith is a model. A role, he's a role model for us. It's, it's a model faith for Muslims to look at and just be in wonder and also try to emulate as much as they could. And the way that we identified how he got there was through his hard work and sacrifice. There was a beautiful point in the story that I think we talked about last time, but I want to bring that up, is that when he was being stung right by the scorpion and the Prophet Sallallahu was resting his head on his leg sleeping, and the Prophet ﷺ did not wake up as a result of the, uh, the movement of Abu Bakr from, from the sting, but rather he woke up due to what? The tears, his tears shedding on his face, realized that that wasn't Abu Bakr Siddiq like letting the tears fall on his face, like maybe he'll wake up, you know? That was Abu Bakr Siddiq trying his hardest to not cause discomfort to the Prophet ﷺ. And instead, what? Absorbing it himself. Absorbing himself. So not put yourself in, in Abu Bakr's shoes. What is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam asking you to do that is uncomfortable for you? But in that ask, you're not going to show that discomfort to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like, what is he asking you to do? Like, what, what is Islam requesting of you? But to God and his messenger, you don't want to show the discomfort. You, your heart may be not be cool with it. I was talking to a girl the other day, and she was saying, not a girl, she's a woman. She's like, you know, and she started wearing the hijab recently. She's like, I hate the hijab. She's just straight up like, I hate it. I was like, let's not get that on camera, right? But no, she was being honest. She's like, I really hate it, right? But I'm doing it. Why? Because Allah's asking me to. It's her, that's her hard work. That's her juhud, right? Not everything that spirituality and religion is going to ask of you is going to jive with you right away. It's not going to automatically click. But, but the more pious and close to Allah you become, the less distance there is between what he wants and what you want. Right? It's like the, the, the better that a person becomes with their nutrition, the less healthy food seems kind of like ugh, flavorless and gross. And you actually start to yearn for it. You know, I don't think there's any place in the world that serves more French fries and fried chicken than Saudi Arabia. When you go for Omar or Hajj, you have like they should just have cardiologists waiting for you at the airport when you come back. <laughs> like literally they should just have your like LDLs and everything tested right there. It's absurd. It is out of control, the amount of french fries and fried chicken that they serve there, okay? You would think that potatoes and chickens were originating from that, from the Middle East. So at a certain point, wallahi, tell me this isn't true if you go. At a certain point, you're sinking your teeth into your fifth Hardy's chicken sandwich for the day, and you're like, 
I really miss fruits and vegetables. Like, I just want something raw. Even an animal at this point, right? You're like, I just want something that's been uncooked. Like, I want, you know, I, it, literally, like, I was having a conversation with this lady last night. We were talking about Omran Hajj memories. And she was saying, like, yeah, there's something about green <laughs> that you miss when you're there. Not the landscape, but the food, the menu, right? No one would, you know, if you had ribs and macaroni and cheese and fried chicken and all this in front of you, no one's going to go for the kale. They're like, why is the garnish in a bowl? Spread it out, right? Design the table. Like, why is it over there? It's a salad. What? What? Who's going to eat that, right? Super Bowl's coming up. Your Super Bowl party is, it has to be delicious, right? Your wedding, no one's going to serve a kale salad at their wedding, okay? You're going to make one person happy. But subhanAllah, enough junk food, enough stuff that, sorry, I see all the people from Denton who are like, we love kale actually, right? Okay. (laughs) All the, (laughs) I'm sorry. Enough junk food and enough stuff that's bad for you. It's delicious, but it's bad for you. Eventually your body, subhanAllah, starts to crave that stuff. It starts to crave it, right? But in the beginning, it doesn't. You have to force yourself to take it. So that's the way spirituality works as well, okay? So now the Prophet Sallallahu we got to the point where the Prophet Sallallahu was in the cave with Abu Bakr Siddiq, and they actually stayed there for three nights. Remember, they headed south. So the city that they were leaving to was which, which direction? North, very good. Medina was north. But they headed south. Why? Huh? Why would you go in a different direction than where you're supposed to go if, if you're being chased by people? Yeah, to throw them off the track, right? To kind of distract them, throw them off the trail. Also, to the south, there were mountains that they could hide in. So the guide, Abdullah bin Uraiqit, who wasn't a Muslim, right? He wasn't a Muslim, but the Prophet Sallallahu trusted him with his life. You know, he hired him because he was a person of good character and good knowledge. He took them to this cave, and he basically left them there. And actually, Abu Bakr Siddiq's son and daughter, Abdurrahman and Asma, uh, anhuma. so this is Aisha's sister and brother, Abdurrahman and Asma. They took it upon themselves to go back home and deliver goods to them every night. And the way they did it was actually really le- like legit. They were basically like acting like they were shepherding animals and they would shepherd all the way out to the mountains. Like do to do to do just kind of go out and then deliver the package and then come back, right? And even one time uh Asma bin Abi Bakr radiyallahu an she uh she didn't have enough cloth to tie the packages together, so she took something from her own garment, her her waist belt. Which now, if you imagine it like ladies, like your purse, imagine like you have a purse and she ripped it in half and she then tied two, you know, sacks together for the, for the packages so that she could deliver one to each of the prophets. Again, even the smallest sacrifice is not overlooked. How do we know that? Because she became the person who was known after that moment as the one with two waistbands because she tore them in half. So don't ever diminish any good that you do for the sake of Allah, even if it's something like giving up something that you think is not that big of a deal, but if you give it up, Allah Ta'ala will accept it, even if it's your purse or your waist cloth or whatnot that you might give up. So the Prophet was there for three nights with Abu Bakr Siddiq, and then the, 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 fourth, uh, the third morning, because the night comes before the morning, the third morning when they left, they were leaving, and I want you to look at this picture, right? The, the, one of the reasons why the mountains were so sought after in the life of the Prophet was because he could go to these places and reflect while still seeing the Kaaba. Now, obviously, you have all these buildings now in between, so the, the view and the pollution and all that is causing obstruction. But at the time, the Prophet was able to go to these mountains and sit and do that reflection that we talked about. And he was able to look at the Kaaba and gaze upon it. And he was able to sort of reflect and, you know, it was drawing inspiration from that. So as he was leaving Mecca, I want you to imagine now, he's 53 years old. 
He's 53 years old because he got revelation when he was 40, and he's been now in Mecca being persecuted for 13 years. So he's 53 years old. Have you guys ever moved before? Ever moved? Anyone ever seen your parents have to move at an old age? It's interesting, right? Not moving like from house to house, even though that's difficult. I'm talking like moving from region to region, from state to state, city to city. It's not easy. There's a very interesting, you know, especially for those of you, this is Dallas, so I think probably half of people in here are not from Dallas. Is that true? Like maybe like maybe four-fifths. Yeah, right? There's like that one person who's like, I'm from Dallas. A lot of people here moved, and you hear about it the way that we talk about, especially if you had a, a really deep love of the city that you came from, the city that you came from. So for me, Chicago, like anything Chicago-related, if you ask me, I'm like, it's the best. Bears, bulls, pizza, anything. Better than anywhere. Why? Because that's my hometown. Literally till today, if I land at O'Hare Airport and I'm in Chicago, like I feel a tightness in my chest. Because that was where I was raised. That was my, my upbringing in Chicago. I, I, forever, if anyone asked me where I'm from, I still to this day don't say Dallas. My kid, my, someone even asked, like, oh, where were your kids born? I was like, Plano? Right? Like, I was like, what? Like, not Chicago? We have to change this, you know? And I'm having that same PTSD that some of our immigrant parents had. And they're like, oh, God, my kid's American. I'm like, oh, God, my kid's from Dallas. You know? He's not going to grow up loving Deep Dish. He's going to grow up loving, I don't know, like Thin Crust. Yeah. Or like, although Chicago has a Thin Crust culture. Little known fact. We can get serious, but I'm not going to get serious. Okay? <laughs> Point being is that like this, this love of where you're from, it's, it's a very thabra'i thing. Like it's Allah created us with it. We love where we're from. You know, you think of all the memories and the nostalgia and that avenue and that corner shop and that, you know, restaurant and all the, and the memories of your friends and all these things that you had, both good and bad. It creates an interesting. So the Prophet was not, was not void from this. He loved Mecca. You have to think about it. 53 years, right? 53 years. So as he's leaving, obviously he's leaving. Why? Because he has to leave. He's leaving because he's being pushed out. It's not willingly. He doesn't want to go. He's being forced out by his people. If he doesn't leave, I mean, literally, the night that he left, there was eight people waiting outside of his door with knives. So it's not a matter of I'm choosing to leave. It's a matter of I have to leave. So he actually turns as he's leaving Mecca, and he can see it. I want you to imagine like this view. He can see it. And the hadith says that his eyes, like they're flowing with tears, like flowing, like a faucet. Not like one tear, one flowing. And he's looking at his hometown, and he's crying. And it's not just that it's his hometown, but this is also where Beit Allah is, the Kaaba. You know, you go there and the Kaaba, it's so grand that it makes all of your problems seem so small. You go for Umrah and you're like, I can't even remember what bills I owe and what degree I have to finish or what fellowship I'm applying to. Or, you know, everything seems to just be ironed out by the magnificence that is the Kaaba. So he's looking at this and he's crying and he says to the Kaaba, how beautiful of a land you are. He's talking to Mecca, very poetic. How beloved to me you are. He says, if it weren't for my people who kicked me out from this place, I would have never left you. He's speaking to the land of Mecca. What's interesting here, subhanAllah, is that it's clear. Does the Prophet want to leave? Yes or no? It's absolutely clear that he does not want to leave. Have you guys ever had to do something that you didn't want to do? As a result of that, has anyone ever had the fleeting or maybe permanent thought in their heart, why is God doing this to me? It's normal. That's very, like... For, 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 for your destiny to dictate, for Allah to have written for you to do something or be somewhere that wasn't what you wanted, it wasn't what you thought, and then for you to have the thought of questioning or asking, oh Allah, why me? I want you to vibe right now with what the Prophet is saying. 
he's telling Allah, he's speaking to, to Mecca, but he's, by Allah is a Samir, he's able to hear everything by virtue of the, Allah's hearing him. And, it, you know, sometimes we feel like, man, should we complain? Is it good to complain or should I just be? Listen to him. He's saying, I would have never left you if God never commanded me to leave you. He's like basically saying it like I didn't, I don't want to go. But then subhanAllah, he follows it up with a dua that's beautiful. And it's very similar to the dua after Ta'if, which was another time when what? When things didn't go the way he wanted. Okay, so in the life of the Prophet there are times when things went the way he wanted and there are times when things did not go the way he wanted. And every time things did not go the way he wanted, he would not shy away from processing how that felt for him. Right? Sometimes people try to frame that religiosity or spirituality means what? That you're not... You don't have human emotions. That's not true. The Prophet cried. The Prophet laughed. He got upset sometimes. That's part of who you are as a human. But at the end of it all, you always have to close the loop with what? Raditu billahi rabbah. I'm happy that Allah is my Lord. Qadar Whatever he has written for me, I will take it. I'll trust in him. That's how you wrap up everything. You can feel what you feel. That's fine. But you have to close that feeling with what? I trust that Allah knows what I don't know. Just like when the angels said, are you really going to create this creation, humans that are going to cause so much trouble? He said, what? I know that which you don't know. So having that idea, okay? So the process of, you know, the power of processing your destiny is a normal human feature. But I'll tell you this, the more close to Allah somebody becomes, the less time that recalibration takes. You know what I mean by that? Like for some of us, when something doesn't go the way we want, it takes like months, years to get over it, like years. And you know what? That's also somewhat human, but that's where the spirituality has to kick in and remind the person over again what? There's something greater at work here. There's something greater at work here. Remind the person almost to the point where you're like convincing yourself. So the more spiritual you become, the closer to Allah, the stronger your iman, you go from what? 12 months to 12 days. And then eventually what? 12 minutes and then 12 seconds and then 1.2 seconds. Literally, as you become closer to Allah, when things don't go the way you want, you want them to go, your power to bounce back is quicker and quicker and quicker each time. To the point where eventually, when something bad happens, you instantly, without even feeling like even like a flinch of negativity, you just say what? That's Allah's plan. It'll do what it, it'll, it'll do what it does. Or if you say what I, what I say, we're all going to die anyway. It's not a big deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tell my wife, sometimes like things go south and I'm like, man, you know what? Alhamdulillah, 32, how old are you? He's 31, I'm going to be 33. Oh my gosh, I'm getting old. 33, she's going to be 32. I'm like, the prophet still some went to 63. We're more than halfway there, right? I'm like, we just got a coast, <laughs> you know? At the, I know it's kind of dark. Just stay with me, okay? I just tell her, I'm like, I know really what I'm trying to say is like, are we really going to let this temporary thing rattle us to the point where we spend the next three decades losing our senses over something that's not permanent? right? But we miss a fedger that's affecting our permanent home and it doesn't rattle us like that. You know what I mean? So this is one of the keys of the Prophet Sallallahu taught us that it's okay to feel, but see how quickly you can come back from that. See how quickly you go from doubt to trust. See how quickly you go from what? From not knowing to knowing, right? And it's not that you know the answer, but it's that you trust that Allah Ta'ala does, okay? The road to Medina was not easy. They leave the city, they go and subhanAllah, you know, one of the things that could be the most challenging thing on a person's trust, especially in a time of difficulty, is when plans change. You guys ever had that before? Like you plan things out and you're like, this is, and you're already a little bit nervous and then all of a sudden plans change. 
it's the worst too when you're trying to like convince somebody that there's nothing to worry about and then plans change. They're like, what's going on? You're like, nothing. I planned this, right? And you're like, God, I did not plan this. So <laughs> the Prophet Abu Bakr Siddiq are making their hijrah and they're with Abdullah bin Uraykit. What happens then is that their camels start to get tired. Now, again, remember, this is God's messenger. It would be pretty nice if God's messenger's camels didn't get tired. But they did. Why? Because no one is exempt from trials. No one is exempt from tests. In fact, the prophets of God were the ones who were tested the most. So I want you to imagine like you commit to becoming a better Muslim. You commit to coming to Roots. You commit to going to the masjid and your car breaks down. You're like, this is a sign, right? God doesn't want me to go to the masjid. It's like, mm, you know, try to figure that one out logically. This is a sign I shouldn't go. No, like I said before, my teachers would tell me that sometimes God tests you when you commit to doing good to see if you're, see if you're legit, if you're true about it, or if it's just like a fleeting moment, you know? It's like after January at the gym. Who's real, right? Who's going to stay? Or who's going to lose that $300 on that year? So their, their camels got tired. So another person by the name of Aus bin Hajar, he carried the Prophet his camel. So Abdullah bin Uraik, let's like go with this guy. Right? So he switched. And then, same thing happened. He got to another person, Mas'ud bin Hunayda. They switched again. And then eventually, eventually, they met their guide, Abdullah bin Uraykhat, closer to Quba, closer to when they were going to be. But I want you to imagine the difficulties, right? Sometimes we imagine that our destiny is like a linear path. Okay, you know what? I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to do this, get married, do this, this, this. But you realize that when you zoom out, you know, when you're in it, I'm sorry, the path is never a straight line. It's always zigzag. Always. It's always up, down, up, down, up, down. Literally, Monday's good, Tuesday's bad. Wednesday's good, Thursday's horrible. Friday's okay. It's up, down, up, down, up, down. The closer you are to the situation, the more volatile it feels. But then when you zoom out, what does it look like? A straight line. Because it's still going in the same direction. So to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who knows everything, it's still going ultimately where you were destined to go, but it's just taking up, down to get there. Why? Because when a person gets tested... In the journey, they become better than had they arrived and nothing was testing them. So, like, I remember when I was trying to, to, to get married to my wife 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we've been married for 11 years, and I was, like, making dua. I was asking every teacher that would listen to me. I was asking any Muslim that would, I was like, any person, right, I'm at the grocery store, how's your day? I'm, like, just trying to get married, right? <laughs> and I was in college, and it was, like, you know, we had a lot of interesting dynamics i was in college she was in college we were from two different communities she's from memphis i was from chicago chicago best city in the world, fourth holy city in the world okay i was she's bangladeshi i'm not bangladeshi although that was like lowest on the totem pole to be honest with you her parents didn't really care that much about that surprisingly because that's like a big thing um i didn't have a job well i did i've always had a job from that but i didn't have like a full-time job right so I, I was working many jobs actually at that point i was working two or three jobs either way i remember like seeking it and like you know, like begging Allah. I remember like begging Allah, like, oh, Allah, please. This is for my faith. This is for my, you know, I want to do things the right way. I want to keep it halal, kosher, like whatever, like organic. I want everything to be pure. I don't want it, you know, I was, I'm doing the right thing. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, Allah, I'm doing it the right way. Like, why is it still hard? I'm doing it the right way. And subhanAllah, then I get married. And <laughs> we got married. I mean, that's like, how is it supposed to conclude? How is it supposed to move on to the story? So we got married, but you know what's crazy? In the three, so we had our engagement for two years, then we had our nikah for two years long distance, and then we finally got married, alhamdulillah, and it was a long journey. It was like a long process, you know what I mean? 
uh, I'm not trying to like rein, you know, reinvigorate or like rejuvenate those of you who are losing hope. You know, it, it, this isn't my motivational speech to you. Either way, like that's a case by case situation. I see some of you nodding your heads and crying silently. Uh, <laughs> so that's not what I'm trying to do. But let me just clarify. Let me just clarify. Those four years, they built me for my marriage. Because you know what you need for marriage? You need the ability with, to withstand the odds that are against you. You need patience. You need strength. You need the ability to be able to rely upon Allah in times where you, like these are things that you need in your life. So imagine if I asked Allah to, for, to, for my marriage and it happened the next day. I would have also still been married, but I would have missed out on all that spiritual training that he gave me. As opposed to the path to that marriage was still a straight line, or was still a, a, a line going in that direction. It just wasn't straight. It was giving me, you know, intervals, <laughs> spiritual intervals in sabr. And in tawakkul and in istiqamah and all these things that we talk about. So in your life, look at how Allah Ta'ala is letting you still flow in that direction. But it seems like sometimes one step forward, two steps back. It seems sometimes like two steps forward, one steps back. It seems sometimes like nothing's moving. Like there are there is something that you are supposed to be receiving at that moment. Let you know, have that, have that that opening. Let Allah Ta'ala show you and teach you what you're gaining in that moment. Every day you go through that you don't get what you want, but you still are working for it, you've gained strength and patience. And that's worth it because it's going to help you once you get it. Whatever it is, the job, the marriage, the, whatever, the kids, all of that, you know, all of that, subhanAllah. So the Prophet ﷺ obviously is doing what God Almighty commanded him to do, but it's just not going as smooth as it was. But why? Because sometimes those detours help, and the Prophet ﷺ never doubted that. Now, interestingly, Abu Bakr Siddiq and Asma. They both showed very interesting abilities on this trip. I want to I want to tell you two stories that are very interesting. So, Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu. First, we'll start with Asma. So, once the Prophet left and Abu Bakr left, Abu Bakr's father's name was Abu Kuhafa radiallahu. And he converted lay, way later on. He converted later on, and the Prophet made du'a for Abu Bakr Siddiq's father to convert. Very powerful, very emotional story. Subhanallah. Um, actually, at one point, Abu Bakr Siddiq he he cried profusely, and the Prophet said, "What's wrong?" And he said. You know, think about how much love they have, you know, as brothers for one another. Abu Bakr said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm crying because my father is a Muslim and he's, you know, passing away as a Muslim. And I know that your father did not do that. Like, I, I feel pain because I had what you didn't have. Amazing connection that they had, subhanAllah. So Abu Kuhafa, his father, he was worried, you know, because what are your parents worried about for you? They're worried about your stability, your ability to take care of yourself. And so Abu Kuhafa, he talked to Asma, his granddaughter, and he says to her, your father left and he didn't leave you with anything. Okay, and he was on point. He was legit. He knew it. And so Asmat really smart because Abu, Abu Kuhafa was blind. So what she did because she didn't want her grandfather's heart to get rattled and be weakened by you know not knowing where her his granddaughters would be taken care of and all this kind of stuff, and also be upset with his son. She didn't want all this bad stuff to happen. So she took some pebbles and she put it in a bag and she goes, No, no, he left me this bag of gold coins. And he was like, let me feel them. And then she felt it, and he was like, good, he took care of you. And Asmat was like, right? So you see like that quick-wittedness. I'll explain why that's not a lie in a second. I'll explain. Okay, the next one that Abu, uh, Abu Bakr did, which is very powerful. So he was walking in the, with the Prophet Sallallahu Remember we said Quraysh had sent people out to go capture him. So he was a fugitive. He was a wanted fugitive. So there's a person, every time they walk by somebody, there's like a lot of hesitation. Abu Bakr said that at one point he was walking in front of him. And then the thought came across his head, what? What if somebody's going to attack from behind? So he went behind him. Then he said, what about the left? Then he said, what about the right? So if you looked at it from above, Abu Bakr was like circling the Prophet Sallallahu 
because every moment he got comfortable, the next thought that came to his head was, what happens if this happens? What happens if that? So he kept circling him. And the Prophet finally asked him, why are, you, <laughs> why are you circling me? Why are you orbiting me? And Abu Bakr explained to him, every time I walk, I think to myself that maybe I'm not covering your backside or your front side or your left side. I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. So this was kind of like the journey that they had. It was a lot of anxiety, if you imagine. Like anyone they see, they're thinking, what? That might be them. You know, imagine like, how do you feel when you're driving and the cop turns out, right? And you're like, oh, God, right there, your heart like sinks or like. And so Abu Bakr had that times a million. And so there was, they walked into a random person because there's people traveling, right? It's like the highway, like there's people traveling. And so they saw somebody and they recognized Abu Bakr. Why? Because he was very famous. Abu Bakr was famous in Mecca because he was like really smart with lineage. He knew lineage. He was like an encyclopedia. So he was legendary. So the person said, oh, Abu Bakr, yeah, Abu Bakr, like it's you, you know, and he kind of knew him and he goes, who's this man with you? Pointing to the Prophet Sallallahu And Abu Bakr in his head is like, oh man, like, is this like a Meccan like plot? Like, are they trying to come and confirm? Did they send out a bounty hunter that didn't know what Muhammad Sallallahu looked like? And he's trying to verify if I say this is the messenger of Allah, he's going to jump out and, you know, attack or stab. So he says, he goes, this is my guide. He's guiding me on my path. And the person goes, oh, cool. And he just leaves. And Abu Bakr Siddiq, he smiled knowing that he was being literal, but the person interpreted it differently, right? So the person said, oh, he's taking you where you're going. And he said, yeah, he's taking me in my life. He's guiding me where I'm going on my path in my life. So Abu Bakr and Ismat, they were very smart. They were able to manipulate situations to avoid what could be a very harmful situation. And this is why there's a hadith where the Prophet said that if you know for certain that a situation is going to get really nasty really quick, then you have a license not to lie. You can't just make something up, right? They bought you a house. Like, no, they didn't, right? You can manipulate the situation slightly to avoid the catastrophe that's impending, okay? So if you have, for example, two friends that are fighting, like if you have two friends that are fighting and it's like getting really bad, you're allowed to go to either of the friends and be like, hey, I was hanging out with friend A, go to friend B, hey, I was hanging out with friend A, and they said that you were really nice and try to repair the relationship. They're like, really? You're like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, they said it, right? And then you kind of repair that. You're allowed to do that. Or if somebody asks you like, hey, let's say that you guys came over and I cooked for you. And I was like, how was it? And you're like, "Mm," but you want to like not hurt my feelings. You're like, that was the best meal I've ever had in my life, right? (laughs) If my life started right now, you know, like (laughs) you just kind of like, you know, but you keep that part silent. The first part is what you say out loud. Even if it wasn't, you're allowed to. And I know this seems like it's kind of dishonest. No, what it is is it's preserving the dignity of that person. You can't lie. This isn't called lying. There's like a uh, there's like a sort of strategic positivity that you're trying to spread. It's not lying for the sake of narcissistic or or, or you know um, problematic aims. Okay. So this was how Bukhara Siddiq and Asma, and this happened the entire time. Um, every single person that passed by the Prophet on this journey. They were, there was some sort of thing that happened to them. Whether they tried to attack the Prophet ﷺ, there's a story about a man named Suraka who tried to attack him. And every time he rode his horse up to the Prophet ﷺ, his horse fell down, like just stumbled and fell. And so he got back up and did it again, it fell down. So finally, after the third time, he started yelling like, I surrender, like white flag, like stop so I can come talk to you. And the Prophet ﷺ, he, you know... He, he received his company, he received his audience, and he sat with him, and he said, what's your name? He said, Suraka, and he said, have you been sent to kill me? He said, yes, and he goes, what if I told you, Suraka, that one day you're going to wear the pearls of Persia? Because why did a bounty hunter do anything? They did it for 
money. They don't care who they're killing. They're just like, look, if someone pays me, I'll put a hit on them. Like, okay, halas. So Surakha's like, I'm just doing it for money. He said, what if I told you that one day you'll you'll be wearing the pearls of Persia around your neck? You know, you're wearing like all the jewels and stuff of Persia. And he said, like, you know, I'd have to. I'd have to believe you. So then they actually got it notated. Abu notated it and he gave it to Soraka. He said, keep this. This is a promise from the Messenger of Allah that if and when that happens, when Islam is spread all throughout this area and those jewels are made available to us, that those, are, those belong to you. Fast forward, when they, during the time of Umar bin Khattab, when they conquered Persia and they went to that area, Umar bin Khattab goes to the treasury and right behind him, Soraka is like, <clears throat> right? And his piece of paper, he's like, I believe those are mine, you know? And, and yeah, it was a prophecy that, that fulfilled, that the Prophet fulfilled, right? So uh, there was this very interesting sort of mir- miracles that happened. But one of the most powerful miracles was how the Prophet never lost focus of who he was. He was a messenger of Allah. Even though he was being chased down, even though he was being hu- hunted, literally, even though he was, his life was at stake, he never forgot who he was. And the reason why I'm saying this is because sometimes at work you are so worn down by the corporate culture and structure that you are being placed in or the people around you or whatever, or life, family issues, social issues, you name it. Tire, it's tiring. Being a Muslim sometimes is exhausting because you have to answer for so much all the time. You're like, I didn't sign up for this, right? So the Prophet ﷺ, he teaches us, like, I want you to imagine how much is on his mind. These two men ride up to the Prophet ﷺ, and they get close to them. And the Prophet ﷺ knows that they're coming, so he turns quickly and he looks as soon as they get close, because they're about to attack. They were basically bandits. And they turn, and he says to them, Men antuma, who are you? And they were so caught off guard by how not scared he was that they fell down. Like, imagine, like, you're sneaking up on somebody, and then you're like, now, and you're going to jump. And they're like, boo. And they turn around and scare you. Like, and then you fall backwards, right? So the prophet saw someone standing there. They thought, we're going to get him. We're going to get him. We're there. He turns around and says, who are you? Tell me your names. And they're just like, so they don't know how to respond. They just respond like what's in their heart. Viscerally, they go, we're horrible people. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> Literally, we're humiliated. God, you got us, you know? You know what he says to them? These are people who are literally about to kill him. Like, I want you to think of this. He says, who are you? He says, Nahmuhanan. He says, he smiles, goes, Bel. Entum, entuma mukraman. No, you two, you're like noble people. I see it. You're noble. You just can't do this stuff. And they were like, they like melted. They were like, oh, who is this person? And then he says, meet me in Medina. Like, this is a person who's focused you see what I'm talking about? Like he's being chased down, hunted. People have bounties on his head. He doesn't know who's out to kill him and who's not. You know, he easily could have just been like, let's fight and like killed him and left them for dead. But he's like, who are you? No, you're not bad. You're good. Just meet me, Medina. We'll, we'll sort this out. We'll fix you up. You'll be fine. Like no one could encounter the Prophet Sallallahu except that he tried his best to, to bring them closer to him. And I, I, I think about this story and I, I'm like overwhelmed with guilt of how many people in my life I've turned away for whatever reason, whatever, like naturally, like whether it's like my face, <laughs> you know, just like exhausted, tired, you know, uh, distracted, any of the things, you know, we all have moments like that. We're like, man, I wish, I hope I wasn't the reason that somebody felt turned away or upset or, and you think of the prophet, so somehow he was so focused on his role as a connector to God. He knew that he knew that people are going to be connected to Allah through him. Right, his teaching, his mentorship, his pastorship. So we, as his messengers, we're the messengers of the messenger. There's that culture we have to carry. 
you can have your bad days. Absolutely. You're more than you're more than welcome. You have a license in Islam to cry and eat ice cream. It's halal, right? Like just make sure you make dua at the end of it, right? To kind of wrap it up again. We have more you have more than an you have a license and an authorization from Islam to feel upset, to feel sad, to feel hurt. We do. The Prophet some shed tears. But at the same time that we know that we have that, on a general level, we have to make sure that our life is defined by trying to show people the beauty that this faith has given us. Even if we don't have all the beauty, whatever we have, whatever it is that we have, it could be charity, it could be samosas, it could be like, you know, buying someone lunch or saying an, a kind word. Have you guys ever complimented somebody's clothes? I've been doing that recently, okay? And I mean it. If I did it to you, I've really meant it. It's not like a social experiment. <laughs> I've been doing it recently. Have you seen people's faces light up when you just say like nice socks and they're just like, you noticed? It's like a game changer. Well, it's like, I, no, I'm genuinely like, you know what? I'm like, if I can't take someone out for food, if I can't, I'm going to at least give them some, some khair. Allah says, give good news to the believers. So give good news. If you see something nice, be like, hey, I like the way your hair looks. I like, I like, your, I like your shirt. I like your, your car looks great, man. Mashallah. Like, that's, a, that's, that's a sick, you know, like uh, button you have. You know, like whatever. And just watch and be genuine, but just watch how it impacts people. This is prophetic. This is prophetic, right? This is how he acted. And you wonder why people are so magnetically in love with him. Like you wonder, like you read these stories about Sahaba, they would give anything for him. They would do anything for him. Why? I mean, part of it was that he was special. Yes, we admit it. But part of it was that he was processed in positivity with people all the time. Right? And that's one of the things that's most difficult. In our era, that's hyper-individual, hyper-self-focused, postmodern, secular, you are the divine, there is no God, all this is very difficult to try to re- rebuild that spiritual positivity. But we have to do it, right? To be the lighthouse for somebody's darkness. Have to. You know, subhanAllah. You may not be able to fix everybody or be that one for everybody, but there might be somebody in your life that you could do it for. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us that, inshallah. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to grant us, inshallah, tawfiq in everything that we do. We ask Allah to forgive our shortcomings and our sins. We ask Allah to bless us and to guide us towards what is pleasing to Him. We ask Allah to allow us to recover from all of our traumas and difficulties. Uh, we ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us the ability to come back to Him with pleasure and happiness. And that even in moments where we don't understand, we ask you, Allah to make us content with your decree. And that one day we will understand why it is what we went through, why it is we went through what we went through, and that there is benefit in it for us. Amin, Rabbil Alameen. Barakallahu everybody. Inshallah. Um, I have a few announcements, I think. Yes. Okay. Um, so for those of you all who have been part of the Roots community, you may have noticed some upgrades that we have. Well, we also started a merch merch store, merch section. So this shirt, uh, both of these were designed by our team. So it says, if the heart is good, then everything will be good. And this is like the heart work motto, the heart work shirt. Uh, this comes from a hadith where the Prophet said, that if there's a, there's a piece of flesh in the body, that if it's good, everything will be good. I didn't want to put the hadith on there because of like bathrooms and stuff. So, uh, so I just put like the summary of it. So that's, that's for heart work in general. And then this one's one of my favorites. Sorry, are these yours? Oh, I'm so sorry, Suzanne. I thought May put them up here for me to show. Sorry, but we're cool. This one is like the messenger specific. So this is the green dome. So, and if anyone asks you, what is that? Then you got like now a whole, like, let me take it for lunch and I'll explain to you. Okay. So those are each being sold. Uh, they're $25 each. 
and whatever obviously profit goes to roots um so you know you're supporting uh the organization that inshallah you love and benefit from um the other thing is that if you want to be in touch sorry i'm sorry susan may allah bless you and may allah give you good laundry in jannah inshallah so uh if you want to be in touch with anything that we do at roots anything at all we're really big on telegram but what we've done now is instead of having one large group with like 500 people we've made separate groups and you can find them and that way you can get announcements that are just specific to what you're interested in so it's rootsdfw.org slash connect all you're going to do is click the link of the program that you're a part of or what you want to be a part of and what you're going to get is like announcements for the program it's also really good for like up to the minute updates if something happens we cancel or we whatever like you know allah protect us all but if something happens we'll communicate it there also, if I ever mention anything, and this happens a lot, like an article or a video, and I don't know where to send it afterwards, right? Um, and so this is a place for us to communicate. And like, if you guys have any questions, like you can ask them there. It's kind of like another way that we can keep our community buzzing in between the Mondays or in between whatever sessions that you come to, inshallah. So rootsdfw.org slash connect. Uh, inshallah, if you join that, then we'll be able to stay in, in, in contact uh, you know, for longer as well, inshallah. Uh, next Monday is going to be really dope, y'all. We got the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi arriving to Qubat. And then we got the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We have some Manda Fadisi, his story, which is like my favorite Musa's name was going to be Salman until like five days before he was born. I don't know what happened. We just went to Musa. Uh, and then the inaugural address that the Prophet Sosan made um, in Medina. So we got a lot to cover. I was trying to get through this today, but you know how I am. Anyways, Barakallah, if you can everybody take care.